Some of the hardest problems in the world exist far above the planet. Our job, to launch the smartest solutions, to protect our satellites, clean up our clutter, to propel breakthroughs in propulsion, to learn more about our place in the universe, to outpace emerging threats. Every day, the Aerospace Corporation uses the latest technologies to ensure our nation's safety and leadership in space. Hi, and welcome to the Space Policy Show. I'm your host, Rebecca Rose. As always, you can find us on Twitter using hashtag the Space Policy Show, and you can engage with our experts on Vimeo using the chat box. We would also like it if you would sign up for our latest news and alerts at aerospace.org policy. Today's episode is on force design, lessons from the Marine Corps. Today, Aerospace's Russell Rombaugh talks to Jonathan Wong from RAND to discuss the concept of force design as a way to shape the future of the U.S. Space Force and reflect on lessons learned from the Marine Corps experience. Russell Rombaugh is a systems director for Aerospace's Center for Space Policy and Strategy, where he conducts research on how institutional defense policy affects U.S. operations in space. Jonathan Wong is a policy researcher at the RAND Corporation. He focuses on the role of new technologies and concepts in shaping militaries and contributes to other force development research in logistics, manpower, intelligence, and strategy. Welcome and over to Russell to get us started. Thanks, Rebecca. And thanks, John, for being here. Thanks for having me, Russell. It's good to see you again after uh, many years of uh, uh, since we last, uh, I think, first met in uh, in Washington D.C. when I was still a uh, still a graduate student. So good to see you. And what John is driving home is he's on today because of common interests he and I have that have nothing to do with space. I'm a little embarrassed to be doing a space policy show with a non-space expert, but. I think John's going to help us get at a really interesting dynamic going on with Space Force and in the space enterprise that we could use a little non-space perspective on. And what we're here to discuss today is force design. General Raymond has said from the get-go that Space Force is going to be a very innovative. It's going to be light and lean. It's going to do things differently. It's going to be the envy of the other services. It's going to live up to being the first military service of the 21st century. One of the ways they're trying to do that is by leveraging what's called force design or what they've come around to calling force design. Force design is a relatively new word though and one we're trying to explore. Space Force is fully committed to it. They're standing up, they've now stood up actually, a new organization, Space Warfighting Analysis Center, still based in Colorado Springs, but tied very closely with both uh, the Pentagon staff of the Space Force, as well as all of the other field commands as well, trying to get at this new kind of service. What then is force design is what we're going to uh, explore today. And one of the ways we're going to explore it is not by talking about space, but by talking about the other big example of force design we have in contemporary DOD. And that is coming from the Marine Corps. John's on with us because he is both a scholar about organizational design, about uh, bureaucratic politics, about all of how things work, but he also is both an ex-Marine, and as you know, we have to have Marines to talk about Marines, uh, and also does research looking at both the Marines and the Army, and so has a great perspective on how, how this new concept is promulgating through the other services. 
And hopefully with these lessons, we can then turn it and learn a little bit more about how Space Force is going to develop for the next few years. So John, coming from Rand, uh, Rand, I'm also proud to have two think tanks on. Can we plunge into it, John? What is this force design term? Where did it come from and why all of a sudden are we using it? Well, thanks, Russell. And, you know, I was pondering this question that you posed to me earlier when, when we first talked about uh, about getting together and, and, and talking about force development, force design, force employment, all these words, and and, and what do they all mean? And I, I'm, I'm actually a little embarrassed to find out in the last uh, couple of days, thanks to some of my colleagues at Rand, that, that force design isn't actually a new term. It's actually quite doctrinal. There's actually some history behind it. And it, it, I guess the best way to explain what force design is, is to contrast it with the other some of the other terms that, that you might hear. Uh, force employment is the use of the forces that we have today. Uh, between zero, I guess the planning construct that, that, that the Pentagon thinks about is what you're going to do with that force between now and three years from now. Uh, contrast that with uh, force development, which is basically taking the forces that you have to the force structure, uh, the material solutions that you have, the weapon systems that you have, and maybe tweaking it around and doing something different with it. And that's in about the five to seven-ish year, year time frame. And force design is the most extreme version of that. That's when uh, I, I wouldn't say like where you get to do a clean sheet design where you wipe the whiteboard clean, but but as close as to it as you as you can in uh, in, in the DoD. And that is the time frame about five to fifteen years where uh, planners really get to think about how new technologies might enable uh, might enable the force to do something different or different demands on on the force, different missions, different roles uh, might alter the way uh, the force is constructed from a um, uh, from a personnel standpoint, the force structure, as well as the equipment, the uh, the technology that might that might be used. And so, I think what what really struck me is that the reason I think the reason why you and I have been hearing this term force design more often now is because in previous iterations, at least uh, for the Marine Corps, for the Navy, for the Army, for the Air Force, there have been attempts at force uh, development where they get to tweak things around. And I think where you hear force design, both uh, in for the Space Force. And for the Marine Corps is because they're trying to do something a little bit more uh, more extreme than that. Um, for the Space Force, uh, starting you know starting fresh because that's where they're at right now. And for the Marine Corps, uh, you know, trying to make a, a more drastic move than I think some of the other services uh, than the other services have been have been making so far. So I think that's where you know I was I was a little embarrassed to find out that that is where the term uh, actually comes from it comes from doctrine. There's a there's a uh, Joint Chief of Staff Instruction buried somewhere that talks about it. Uh, but I think the reason why we hear about it a lot is because force design uh, is very rarely pursued uh, by the DOD and by the services. Thanks, John. Uh, I, knew we, we, I knew we had made the right choice bringing on a diligent <laughs> RAND re researcher who would give us absolutely the by the book answer going back no matter how long it took. Uh, thanks for living up to everything RAND's supposed to be. Uh, we can absolutely can <laughs> brag about F-40Cs throughout the show. Although I got to push back a little bit because uh, it's been interesting watching Space Force uh, explore the term. And as, as you know, as a, I'm a scholar of organizations, oh man, clean sheet is so hard to get. And the closest approximation in the space world before for, the use of the term force design was architecture. Absolutely right that that longer term time horizon has been so important. But also what's so important to space is because it's such a highly engineered domain, getting all of the various pieces to interlock well, 
building the interfaces so they do has long been one of the tough goals. And so space has long thrown around the term architecture, a term you don't hear in the other services. My favorite way about this is the, the Navy has architects. They're people who make sure the parts of the ship work together, like much closer to build you a house kind of architect. But it's always had special meaning in the, the space force. And so that has now been moved into force design, not just on a time scale, but on an integrating level, trying to make all of these disparate pieces fit together, which, as you alluded to, is something the Marines are doing differently. So why does the term work for the Commandant? Why did he go to this term? I mean, I know, as you said, because the Commandant's a good doctrinal thinker and you guys have provided the doctrinal terms, but why did he need to use the term? Why couldn't he just said, my new force structure, my new... Uh, organization? Why did they end up using force design? You know, that's a really great question, Russell. And I think it actually harkens, like, I think there's something to be said about uh, the different terms that you just introduced, architecture versus force design. And I think that what I think are the similar motivations behind it, you know, for the Space Force, uh, it, it definitely makes sense to me to use, the, for, for me to see the term architecture being used. It's a very engineer-centric uh, force in, in a kind of a cultural sense, you know, everything that I, uh, things that I read and hear about when I, uh, when I read about the Space Force, I hear that term uh, being introduced. I hear other engineering terms being introduced. I even read something not too long ago uh, about uh, proclaiming that the Space Force was going to be a digitally engineered uh, force, harkening back somewhat, to, I think, to uh, uh, Dr. Will Roper's uh, efforts to introduce more digital engineering in the Department of the Air Force as a whole. Um, for the Marine Corps, even though it's a different term, I think the motivation is the same. He was pursuing the digital. I mean, as much as he was willing to give Will Roper credit, the Space Force has been trying to be original and new themselves. But yes, I'm sorry. I shouldn't interrupt. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, no, uh, no worries. Uh, for General Berger and the Marine Corps, I think the motivation is the same. It's a signal. It's a cultural signal. And I think to really appreciate and understand why he chose the word force design instead of speaking uh, in, in more plainly, I think goes back to maybe the last uh, eight to 10 years in the Marine Corps. And I think back, this is around the time that, that I was actually leaving the service. And as I was leaving, you know, as a young captain, uh, I could see um, the Marine Corps thinking a lot about returning to its amphibious roots. That's all uh, senior leaders were saying. We're done with Iraq. We're done with Afghanistan. Um, and we're going to go back to our amphibious roots. And they were launching all these exercises to do the things that they had done before. And within, I think, two or three years, there's some great articles that uh, uh, the Center for New American Security kind of where they kind of document this. Within two or three years, they realized that wasn't going to cut it. Uh, not only was that not your know, previous uh, approaches to amphibious operations wasn't going to cut it. They were getting signaled from uh, from on high uh, that their efforts uh, to you know, re, you know, reset themselves as what they were, what they were before Iraq and Afghanistan, were not going to be sufficient. I, th I think back to Secretary uh, of Defense uh, Bob Gates. He gave a speech, I think, around uh, 2011, 2012 or so, at the Marine Memorial Club in San Francisco, at, at, of all places, where he questioned uh, the Marine Corps' role in in the Department of Defense. He questioned its role. He saw it as a second land army, and that really, I think, lit the fire underneath Marine Corps leaders to really go and try to do something 
something different. And they actually iterated once before, mid to 2010s or so, where they thought about themselves as a crisis response force, as a middleweight force. I kept hearing these terms uh, from, from their leaders. I think at, even at some point, I was uh, chatting with, uh, with a friend of mine who was a, who's a Pentagon staffer. He was a, he was a Marine. And um, I think a lot of them had this like PowerPoint deck, uh, this PowerPoint slide that they all kept in their cargo pockets that they would whip out anytime someone wanted to ask them about the Marine Corps' crisis response capabilities. And so they did all that. They made up, they stood up these ad hoc units, and that wasn't enough. And so this is around, I'd say, 2017 or so, 2018, uh, at the end of uh, the previous commandant, General Neller's uh, term and the beginning of General Berger's term, where they realized that wasn't going to be enough. They needed to signal that they're going to do something more drastic. And although they used, I think, a, a doctrinal term, force design, you know, they did it and unveiled it in a way that was uh, that was very much a signal. I think just as the Space Force was it uses the term architecture uh, as a signal. I am super excited where you ended up there. I was worried you were going to tell us that Marines are basically an engineering culture, and I, that didn't seem to jive with my experience. But now I see where you're going. But you've also uh, embarrassed me a little bit. I was sure to use the Chief of Space Operations name, General Raymond, but I hadn't used General Berger's name yet. Uh, this is, after all, the Space Policy Show. Maybe we take a, should take a moment and talk about what is General Berger's force design? What does he mean by using this somewhat radical term? Sure, uh, and let me try. And, and Russell, you're gonna you're gonna please interrupt me when uh, when I get too deep into the jargon, particularly marine jargon. I am very conscious as a former marine that uh, that is a trait that I cannot seem to shake off, and that no matter how objective I try to get as a rand analyst, I end up reverting at times back to to my marine self. So please. You know, give me the hook if uh, if nothing's uh, if nothing's making sense. Um, but to, to answer, your... we have from bringing a marine onto the space policy show. This will be a successful. Episode. Well, I, I will try not to eat any crayons or anything like that. Uh, but for for General Berger, what his vision is, and it, the really cool part about all this is, it's so publicly uh, he, he puts it out so publicly in so many different different ways. Um, it is about countering China. It is about countering China, not through amphibious assaults and uh, maneuver uh, maneuver forces and, and ground combat directly, uh, but emphasizing the Marine Corps' ability to use uh, long-range precision fires, ground-based long-range precision fires, adding to the kill chain with sensors and other contributions to C4ISR, and having a presence, a small presence, distributed throughout uh, throughout the region. And I think that's you know, that's the the kind of most basic characterization of of where the Marine Corps wants to go under General Berger, and you could you could definitely argue that uh, in terms of uh, force design, uh, you know, it, it it might be something that's a little too that's a little too focused on one thing, and that's a, that's definitely a criticism that that others have leveled against uh, this particular force design. And I think it remains to be seen uh, how much they're they're going to continue to evolve it. You know, one thing I got I got to add here is that. Uh, Everything that you read about uh, Force Design 2030, which is what General Berger calls uh, calls this kind of incarnation of, of the Marine Corps, every time he writes about it, he writes about it as an initiative where we're going to experiment and continue to iterate. And I, I, you know, I'm really interested to see how much more iteration he's you know, the organization is going to be able to sustain bureaucratically. And, I, and I'd be interested to see how how the Space Force tackles as well as a new uh, force that doesn't have the same inertia uh, that the Marine Corps is not weighed down by, but but has to contend with. John, you bring up a lot of really interesting parallels there. 
I'd say the, the first one to concentrate on is uh, this China focus. Um, for the space, we always have to also add in Russia, who's been a developed space nation throughout the Cold War. But still, it is China that has the uh, is more consciously modernizing and more consciously modernizing to make space part of their entire way of warfare. And for uh, the Space Force, this gets expressed as space is a warfighting domain. And without a doubt, one of the purposes of force design is, again, to take all these disparate systems, the GPS satellites, these satellite communication satellites, the missile warning satellites, and turn them into a single organization better designed for fighting a war, potentially even in space, something that can be commanded and controlled. The Marines, of course, have thought they're a warfighting organization for a very long time. Can you tell us a little more what that looks like, the break between crisis uh, operations or Iraq and Afghanistan or their amphibious routes and this new Force Design 2030 look? Sure. I think the biggest... the biggest thing, if, if, if it was a, if they, if they actually accomplished this and laid this force out and employed it as, as they envision it today, I think the biggest, the most noticeable thing that you see is that it's going to be really small, small in terms of unit size. So, uh, historically, when I think back to, uh, the last time the Marine Corps was, was really big in the Pacific in, in, in World War II in a big way, these were division and core size operations, tens of thousands, uh, of, of troops, uh, moving around. That was kind of the basic unit of, of organization. You move to, uh, to the second historical period you, you mentioned, Iraq and Afghanistan. The battalion was, uh, you know, about 600, 900, uh, folks. The battalion was the uh, was a kind of uh, a unit of uh, I shouldn't say unit of analysis. It's very ran like of me. It's the kind of basic unit that the uh, that the Marine Corps uh, moves around in. And I think here for uh, for Force Design 2030, when they think about employing themselves in what they call expeditionary advanced base operations, these are going to be much smaller. So company minus so that about 200 200 folks platoon size, 40, you know, 40 folks, even squad, you know, squad reinforced size. So about, you know, uh, 13, 13 to, uh, to 26 uh, Marines in one place. And I think what's really interesting to me and what really you know, stuck out at me when I first uh, read about it as a former infantry officer was that they would be so far away from each other that they could, they will not be able to mutually support one another directly in, in, in the ways that kind of traditional infantry uh, Marines like myself uh, would envision. Uh, and so that to me is, is the most distinctive part, uh, about, uh, about this, this particular force design. And I gotta say, this isn't something that the Marine Corps is, is alone in doing. Uh, the Army is thinking about chopping itself up into smaller and smaller pieces. Uh, the Air Force, same thing, uh, in, in terms of its, uh, agile combat employment concept. So all these efforts really focus on China to solve the targeting problem or to at least mitigate some of the targeting problems that they think they'll, they'll see by, by disaggregating themselves into small and small units. So if you had to ask me, as you did, you know, what's the kind of distinctive feature, I would point to that, that it's going to be just a couple, you know, couple Marines uh, out there uh, really alone and, and unafraid, connected differently um, uh, to different capabilities, but not in, in the same kind of line of sight, kind of mutually supporting fashion that, that I would be familiar and, and comfortable with. And I shouldn't say that it, it, you know, not as a critique, but definitely, definitely there's a level of discomfort that I feel as a, as a former Marine infantry officer thinking about how, how they're going to be putting all these forces out there, uh, in such, uh, in such disparate places. 
man, I knew this would be a rich analogy to mine. I, I didn't quite realize how many different things we could draw on. But no matter how lonely you may have gotten in your foxhole, I assure you, that doesn't in any way compare to whipping along at 18,000 miles an hour in low Earth orbit. Uh, up in space, those space operations are really lonely, not least of which the severe distance between the operator in, some, in a ground control station and the spacecraft in space doing these things. So absolutely, from a, a space enterprise perspective, it definitely looks like the rest of the military moving more toward the model space has been working on uh, for a long time. Ah, I see what you did there. That's so interesting. Um, I can even draw com you know, comparisons to kind of commercial space efforts where you have a lot of low Earth uh, orbit uh, kind of CubeSats and smaller satellites in, in much greater numbers and, and kind of spread around in, in different orbits. That's, you know, I'm going to have to chew on that one. I'm, I might be thinking about this all day long. I'm, maybe I'll text you later. I'm very much looking forward to that conversation, although you're complicated a little bit, right? Because the, the more you turn into these, the, the more numbers you have, the harder it is to make it a single cohesive whole. One of the reasons the Space Force Force Design is such a powerful concept is because it is still a limited number. Or we can drive this point home even more. Uh, the Marine Corps, the smallest service until the Space Force arrived, right? The Army likes to be up around half a million. The Air Force and Navy are well over 300,000. The Marines got close to being 200,000. Well, Space Force is going to increase their end strength by more than 30% this year to 8,400. So it's on a small totally but different scale. Now, different scale, again, for warfighting effects, it is not just what those people on the ground are doing, what those guardians on the ground are doing, but how you leverage today's informationized war, to steal a Chinese's term. Uh, that scale is really interesting, and I think the space people will take heart that they are that other services are trying to move in that direction. Yeah, I think definitely all the services are grappling with this, and I'd be really interested to. In, in having, you know, I, I know very few guardians, you know, myself personally, I'd be really interested to, to, uh, to pick their brains a little bit about how they feel about that. You know, because when I, when I look at some of the work that I do for the army investigating, uh, their, uh, intended operational concepts and they haven't gone the same route it, it, with, with the kind of level of extreme kind of force design as, uh, uh, as the Marine Corps has, I do sense, at least from my interactions with, uh, with, with soldiers, I do sense a level of discomfort about getting away from from the brigade combat team and, and going into these smaller, smaller, more task organized uh, units. And I wonder how the Navy feels about it as well, as it considers uh, smaller ships where command opportunities are, are going to be more prevalent for for more junior officers uh, and, and even petty officers. You know, I, I wonder what that does to these organizations that are used to the kind of uh, the the, le the level of comfort that they have in the in, in the unit sizes that they, that they have, uh, from my you know, conversations with uh, with other Marines, uh, friends of mine that have uh, that have stayed in, uh, I don't see that level of discomfort too much. But I'd be really curious to see what, how the Space Force feels, because it, you know, it, from what I understand, and Russell, correct me if I'm wrong, 
uh, guard, the Guardians come from somewhere. They come from the Air Force for the large, for the, for the most part. I do believe also uh, you've got a couple folks uh, coming in from, from the other services, uh, but they themselves come in with some sort of institutional memory, even if it's not, uh, not the Space Force itself. And, and so I'm kind of curious about that. Uh, not quite anymore. Uh, the Space Force has started direct accessing, either commissioning straight out of the Air Force Academy or uh, enlisting straight off the streets into the Space Force. So while it's still not the bulk of Space Force, Space Force is well on its way to being its own service. Uh, and I also emphasize another word for small, John, is elite. Don't worry. Mm. We recognize you're still a little bit in the backwaters, but somehow we'll arrange to drive you across L.A. So you can come down to now the Los Angeles uh, Space Garrison to meet some real guardians. Or even better, we can drive you up the coast to the Vandenberg Space Base, where you can uh, see some of the operations in action as well. I definitely want to take you up on, on that offer either either way. Uh, the last time I was at LA Air Force Base, it was just an Air Force Base. So I, I'm interested to see what life looks like uh, now that it's, uh, uh, that it's part, of the, uh, part of the Space Force. But I think the question, it's going to be a really interesting question about how the organization you know, forms culturally. And you can kind of, like, me from an outsider, I can kind of see, you know, uh, elements of that, you know, if you watch a recruiting commercial or look at their their strategic documents, I can kind of see the outlines of uh, the kind of culture, the organizational culture they're gonna uh, they're gonna cultivate. But yeah, it, I think it'll be really interesting, and I will definitely take you up on that offer. I just love one of the reasons I love working at Rand is because I get to talk to people. I get to talk to people and ask them you know, questions that feed my curiosity. So I am you know, intensely curious about how that organizational culture in the space force is is going to form or is forming. Well. We certainly could spend a lot of time talking about how cool everything the Guardians do is, but uh, we better go back to our expertise. And I want to go back to another analogy you had drawn out. Uh, you had talked about the iteration and the experimentation inherent in General Berger's vision. I'm curious to poke at that a little bit. Space Force is going even farther than that, right? It, it is not just experimentation, and nor is it, it just occasional iteration, force design is baked into how they plan on doing everything, including even the annual budgeting cycle, right? That force design will be revisited as part of that and then be pervasive throughout all of the other decisions that get made about Space Force. Is that the same level of iteration General Berger means? You know, I not being in in the rooms where these conversations are being had only I'm only reading the tea leaves from the outside I think he means that uh, that is the ambition that he has but the way you describe uh, the space forces uh, approach if if all else being equal I think that the space force will be more will, will have kind of great you know further iteration cycles more frequent iteration cycles in, in the Marine Corps and the reason why I think that is is this uh, to create, uh, this force design and to emphasize uh, the things that he is changing. General Berger has had to uh, has had to really kind of um, you know poke at some sacred cows that the Marine Corps has. Uh, whether that is uh, the number of amphibious ships uh, that the Marine Corps has always advocated for. He's come back from that a little bit, whether it is uh, disbanding uh, Marine armor, a small community, but uh, but still felt very, you know, it's when they rolled up those unit flags, it was felt throughout the, uh, you know, throughout the Marine Corps in a very, in a very uh, severe so way. You're probably going to tell uh, us a little more about what Marine armor is. Right. So those are, yeah, Marine, uh, Marine tanks. So the same tanks, actually, 
kind of uh, lesser, not as sophisticated versions of the M1 uh, M1 tank that uh, Abrams tank, the main battle tank that the Army has. Uh, the Marine Corps had its own version. It was uh, not as sophisticated, and uh, General Berger saw that it was just eating up an inordinate amount of resources. No, they can't swim. Uh, thank you, Russell. You are you are pointing me towards the other corner of marine uh, marine armor, which is uh, uh, amphibious vehicles, armored amphibious vehicles that are that are very old, and that is actually being brought under question as to their their future role. I did mention kind of early 2010s, the Marine Corps tried re, you know resetting itself back to an amphibious force. If that's not the answer, I wonder what the future of those amphibious vehicles are. So you know, circling back, you know. Uh, you're taking away things like that, like uh, like marine armor, is a signal that I think General Berger made deliberately to show just how serious he was about re about reinventing the Marine Corps. And what I worry about a lot for uh, for these force design efforts is that eventually uh, he's going to run out, or I shouldn't say he in that you know it's all it, it, it's all personally in, in General Berger, but uh, but the Marine Corps may run out of institutional kind of energy to continue to iterate because it has the it has the, you know, the the weight of history on its back i think in a way that the space force doesn't and the way you just described uh how the space force is going to be constantly iterating almost like in, in an engineering fashion right like software is never done um i'd be really curious to see if that gets baked into the organizational culture where it is normal to uh to uh, really look at yourself and reinvent yourself and, and do a 2.0, 3.0 and keep, you know, keep developing different iterations yourself at a very rapid clip. Uh, I think the Marine Corps is, is, you know, done a lot more, uh, than I thought it would, um, in terms of how much, uh, how many iterations it's gone through the way I described, you know, amphibious operations, crisis response. No, that wasn't it. All right. We're going to do this, uh, this very drastic force, uh, force design 2030, you know, I wonder if they could, if they have enough energy, uh, institutional energy to keep doing it over and over again. So if I had, you know, all else being equal, I can see the Space Force uh, doing it more frequently. I see the Marine Corps, you know, having maybe one more iteration in its, uh, you know, in its, uh, in its gas tank uh, that's left. But, uh, but I'm definitely curious to see what, you know, how that will all play out for both services. And now you've pulled us back into our research interests, our common shared research interests, a great deal. You made the analogy to software development and the just constant iteration, right? The, the using agile processes, doing DevOps to keep that iteration. Of course, one of the reasons you can do it is you're just flipping those bits and bytes, right? You have very little physical infrastructure you need to change, but that's not true in defense decision making. You have a crap ton of infrastructure, not just all those tanks that the Marines now need to get rid of, but the decision-making infrastructure, the Pentagon itself, to, to, to use the term, with all of its processes. We've mentioned General Berger, we've mentioned General Raymond, but of course, they're not the only actors in U.S. defense. There's a bunch of things that exist, the PPBE cycle, the acquisition cycle, the congressional budgeting cycle, OMB's review. There are all of these bureaucratic processes that these new, these services have to fit their processes into. Uh, and I completely acknowledge it adds layers, although, as always, I have to give the defense that, uh, man, we really shouldn't be concerned about living in a pluralist society, having a government that represents a bunch of different interests, right? I mean, that is what makes us 
America. And that is how we beat the Soviets. They had nice, clear lines. We didn't. I don't want to go back. But it's a challenge when you try to create these new things like force design. When you try to do that iteration, because you have to do it in a process that may or may not be responsive to it. Can we peak? The Marines are a couple of years ahead, right? General Berger first unveiled this, what now, 18 months ago? Uh, yeah, that's about have, right. Have we seen it run into the Pentagon processes or congressional processes in a way we can start taking some lessons from? A little bit, uh, a little bit in that um, I think there was, gosh, what was it? And you're, I, I absolutely take your point that these the services do not uh, kind of walk alone. You know, they're integrated into larger, uh, large, a larger bureaucracy, the largest bureaucracy in the world. Um, and, you know, they have to contend with that. Before I answer, though, I will, you know, I, I will observe that we are talking about the two small services. So if there's anyone that can do it within those the constraints I'm going to talk about, it's uh, the 8,000 person strong uh, Space Force. Uh, it is the 186,000 uh, uh, person Marine Corps, the two smaller services that have, I think, the best, the greatest ability to make these changes because they are, you know, in relative terms, uh, smaller than than the rest. Uh, but you're right; there there are a lot of uh, impediments uh, to that. Have the have you know have the Marines run into uh, resistance internally? They they did, uh, but I think in a way that has been productive. Uh, criti- you know, critiques that run across. Uh, whether it's articles in the Marine Corps Gazette or in- internal conversations within headquarters Marine Corps, I think a lot of those have been uh, addressed effectively by the commandant, uh, addressed effectively by his staff. And uh, institutionally, the Marine Corps is presenting a pretty united front about where it wants to go. Now, I-, I would say that in terms of how it runs into the DOD process, I don't see too many impediments there. Where I did see some uh, some uh, resistance or some obstacles, I shouldn't say resistance, definitely some, some obstacles, is when they came across to their budget request. Uh, and I believe that they had requested, uh, I forget the exact amount, um, a significant amount of money for uh, land-based uh, long-range precision fires. Uh, Congress paired that, uh, paired that request back uh, a little bit. Um, I have not yet seen uh, the response, you know, kind of responses emerging from the latest uh, budget request. Um, I've not seen that same, uh, whether uh, that same um, reluctance to invest in precision fires uh, uh, remains. But I remember when I remember reading about that, gosh, like, you know, six, eight months ago, I was very surprised. And it seemed to me that the that the Marine Corps did not make a clear enough case uh, for why it needs uh, ground based long range precision fires in that kind of in that kind of investment. You know, if I had to answer uh, you know, from you know looking at the entirety of its uh, force design efforts, I haven't seen you know not that you know not that much resistance, which is which is a little surprising. But I'm also in kind of a wait and see mode. They they've only made the the kind of uh, they made a couple uh, high profile cuts, cutting those armor units like I talked about. But they haven't really the Marine Corps hasn't really dived in, uh, dove in, and really started uh, you know breaking the China. Um, uh, no pun intended. Breaking the China to uh, to get what it uh, get what it wants. It's not it's not quite there yet. So I think whether it'll run into serious resistance, I think uh, remains to be seen. Um, I wish I had a better answer in terms of lessons for the Space Force, though. What if we turn the question uh, a, a little bit different and talk about the Marines' own bureaucracy? Uh, again, we can first draw some neat parallels, right? The, the rest of the services have embraced the general staff system, right? G1, G4, G8, uh, N1, N4, N8, the Air Force, A1, A4, A8. 
<clears throat> the Marines never went that way. They always had program and resources, uh, policy plan and operations. The Space Force is following along that line. They're, they're using, as it were, corporate titles, the Chief Strategy and Resources Officer, the Chief Operations Officer, the Chief Human Capital Officer. Now, partly that's because there's just fewer three-star direct reports to the Chief of Space Operations than there are in the other services. That's true of the Marines as well. How much have we seen the Marines' processes change to better make force design happen? Sure, there was definitely, um, and this is this is only what I've observed from the outside. There was definitely a large reorganization of what, what's called the advocate structure, advocate system within the Marine Corps. Previously, the Marine Corps had you know various occupational fields: infantry, armor, artillery, uh, logistics, so on and so forth. All those had what what was called an advocate that pushed for the priorities, whether it's material or personnel or, or whatnot. Uh, you know, that pushed for its that community's uh, needs uh, within the Marine Corps. There was a huge restructuring of that advocate system because it was, I, I think the, the commandant correctly saw that, that was where most of the resistance uh, was going to come from. So he, he preempted that by restructuring the advocate organization uh, to be to allow it to think more freely, to not be uh, so fixated on the on fighting for the existing programs that uh, and priorities that it wanted before and he was remarkably effective i think uh in, in doing it and that is you know I, you know as a disclaimer this is me watching that happen from the outside but it was really interesting uh to see that bureaucratic reshuffling take place almost like preparatory fires where uh he was able to uh uh to um kind of address some of the uh, the bureaucrat internal bureaucratic officers that he foresaw would, would take place. So that was that was definitely an interesting thing uh, thing to watch. John, that was very illuminating, not least because of this concept of advocates. Uh, Space Force doesn't, I don't think anybody in the Space Force would know how to use the word advocate. This is one of the dynamics of going from being a minor community in a larger service to having uh, their own service, the Space Force being a service by itself dedicated to the space domain. Uh, we certainly have organizational structure, right? Not least of which the major field commands, uh, the systems command, acquisition for the most part, the operations command, training and readiness command. Uh, but I don't think folks see themselves as advocates for that. Uh, it's not that the command represents a stovepipe or anything. Of course, that may drive home even more the importance of the SWAC, the Space Warfighting Analysis Center, which is neither a field command nor is it staff. It is uh, a different kind of thing, a different animal, a direct reporting unit with that task to think more holistically. I, I guess, is there something more than the commandant himself who's serving that role in the Marine Corps? Yeah, that's a great question, Russell. Does is there kind of an institutional home for this kind of innovation or force design? Um, I don't think in the same way that the Space Force has arranged itself. And maybe this points to the role of analysis uh, in the different services. I got to you know, make a shout out to, uh, you know, um, former Rand, uh, Randi Carl Builder, who wrote about that in, I think, the mid-80s in Masks of War, about how the different services use analysis and studies and things like that. For the Marine Corps, I think it's a very organic uh, community is there a is there a central home for force design? I can't identify one, but I can identify an emerging group or cadre of uh, of 
midfield great officers and staff and CEOs that are very invested in these ideas and are willing to push the envelope and are willing to uh, to experiment alongside uh, alongside others on this. Um, you know, but I don't see the same you know centralized role that the uh, Space Warfare Analysis Center might play for for the Space Force now. Well, that's an interesting difference. We'll have to watch in the coming years. Uh, what does it matter? Do you do you have a key element focused on that, or is it somehow infused throughout? Although, since you use the word organic, I'm going to take advantage of that to analogize to what I think is the last time the Marines tried something this radical. And not surprisingly, it's the last time they came out of a big war that wasn't what they thought was their bread and butter. Coming out of Vietnam with all of the country trying to focus on the central front, the European theater staring down the Soviets who are trying to improve their qualitative superiority or trying to improve their quality so they are not uh, so qualitatively inferior to what the United States had achieved. Uh, and this is totally stealing from Terry Tariff, but he points out there was a debate. Do we go big, get more armored like the army, or do we uh, go small? Um, what's interesting about this debate is uh, maybe we've already seen that in the past you, you heard, but I can't help but notice that the Marines ended up looking a lot like what they went into in uh, before Vietnam, but they did end up as a middleweight force. Is that just institutional pressures? Is that bureaucratic pressures? Is it operational pressures? And what can that tell us as we look at these organizations trying to more consciously design themselves for the future? Maybe they should have signaled uh, the by using the word force design or the term force design to uh, to get a little bit more extreme. No, I think the answer to that is actually that the uh, maybe what they figured out was that what they were uh, the force design that they had at the time was actually sufficient to uh, to do the trick. And I think where a lot of the intellectual energy uh, seemed to go was how those forces were employed. And this is the whole early 80s debate in the Marine Corps about maneuver warfare and these kind of German concepts and things like that. And I got to say today, uh, the Marine Corps, the particularly in these field grade officers that, that, I, that I'm seeing, uh, they look back to that time as a time of inspiration. Uh, they look back to the captains and majors and lieutenant colonels that were pushing for maneuver warfare and having these, you know, uh, these knockdown uh, intellectual arguments. And they see themselves as inheritors to that and want to pattern themselves after the intellectual kind of back and forth that happened in the early 80s in the Marine Corps regarding uh, regarding maneuver warfare. So I, I definitely see the through line there. And I, th I think you raise a great point that uh, the Marine Corps has been here uh, before in, in the post-Vietnam time. Uh, I think the approach that they're taking now is, is probably more drastic than that, because I think that they've come to realize over the last 10 years that it is that they have to take these more extreme measures in, in terms of force design because the the amphibious uh, return to amphibious roots idea really didn't work. The crisis response uh, emphasis wasn't sufficient. Uh, it really required a more a more extreme um, a more extreme um, review and, and kind of relook. Well, I'm really enjoying how many of these analogies we keep turning up because the 80s were a very important time for the space community too. The, establishment of Air Force Space Command and the start of the consolidation of space within the Air Force uh, is absolutely one of the forerunners to Space Force being its own military service today. Again, 
in yet new operational circumstances, new strategic circumstances. Uh, I'm not quite brave enough to tell you what the next war is going to look like, uh, but we've also had a great conversation already. So can I just ask you any final thoughts? Are there analogies you think are important? Are there lessons to be learned? What should we in the space community be thinking about having uh, from somebody who's watched the Marine Corps go through this reorganization or this conscious effort to reorganize? If there's one thing that I, you know, that, that I would take away uh, if, if I was an observer from, from the Space Force is having an eye towards implementation. And implementation thinking, what I mean by that is thinking about how your organization, being conscious about how your organization is forming uh, culturally. Uh, because when you described the the kind of staff system the other services have, but the Marine Corps and the Space Force doesn't, it made me got it got me to thinking about you know, why is that? Why is the Space Force going in in this particular direction, and what are the implications of that uh, for how it makes decisions? I you know I, I, I don't critique it one way or another, but I think being conscious of uh, of the organization that that you're forming and the way and what it emphasizes is is particularly important. Secondarily, I think implementation in terms of fit, how it fits into the uh, into the overall defense uh, you know, the defense um, acquisition system, the PPB structure, JSIDs, etc. I think is particularly important. I think there's a role for that, and I think it's 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 a particularly good time to be thinking about now because I think there's a lot of uh, momentum in the institution and in Congress as well. Towards having a second look at uh, at those structures, I think they've, they've made a lot of progress on the defense acquisition system and, and, and kind of breaking that up into more digestible chunks. I think the next thing that the space force uh, should be conscious of is how the PPBE system, the resourcing system, uh, and the requirement system JSIDs is going to change in, in the future. And having an eye and leaning in uh, and, and making its uh, its and making sure its needs are represented as those changes occur, because I think they're going to happen in the next in the next five to ten years. Well, I certainly enjoy getting to think about those challenges, uh, although nothing like concluding a space policy show by uh, with a sister FFRDC of uh, emphasizing we get the, the luxury of thinking about them without getting stuck with the responsibility for actually doing it. So uh, uh, we, we get to sit in a pretty catbird seat. And this show has uh, emphasized that to me. John, I learned a ton from you. I, I thought there was something here. But actually having the conversation and seeing the analogies, getting to tease out the differences where we found them, I, I, it's been very interesting to me. I hope you've enjoyed becoming just a little bit spacier. You know, it is the 21st century, John. Uh, and look forward to many conversations to come as we explore all these uh, these ideas. Thanks for having me, Russell. If there's anyone that can put, you know, figure out the through line between the Marine Corps and the Space Force, it's, uh, it's you. So thank you very much for having me. I don't know if I'll live up to that, but uh, Rebecca, thank you for letting us uh, have this conversation, and we hope it's of interest to others as well. Cheers, everybody. Thank you to Russell and Jonathan for that interesting discussion. Thanks to our spectacular production team, Colleen Stover, James Liggins, and Jordan Bingham. Check us out on Twitter using hashtag the Space Policy Show, and sign up for our latest news and alerts at aerospace.org policy. Be sure to look for our podcasts and share your favorite episodes with colleagues. We look forward to having you tune in to our next episode of the Space Policy Show. And until then, take care.